Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grand Rounds. Hopefully everyone is doing well, staying safe, drinking a good cup of coffee this morning, and uh, getting ready for uh, a busy day. We have a uh, terrific Grand Rounds presentation today by uh, Rachel Zoftness, who is uh, uh, California normally, but I've, I've heard she's been uh, in the East Coast uh, in the pandemic time, so it, so it's not three in the morning for her. Uh, you know, I was going to ask Dr. Zemsky not to be so mean, but he promised that she wasn't. A uh, couple of announcements. I have some really good news to share with, with all of you. Uh, the, the first thing is that we have a couple of appointments uh, in the Department of Pediatrics, which, uh, which are really uh, worth celebrating. One is Dr. Michelle McKee was appointed Associate Professor of Pediatrics. She's our head of the, uh, new head of the Emergency Medicine Department. And uh, so congratulations to Michelle for, for the appointment that was approved yesterday by the Board of Trustees. And also to Dr. Lori Pelletier, who's our Chief Quality Officer, and she's also appointed as an Associate Professor. Uh, both have a commonality, they're both engineers. And so we've, uh, I, I, I've been just enormously impressed by their engineering minds and how they do things. And for the pandemic, they couldn't have come at a better time. So, so Lori and Michelle, congratulations. And then the next uh, good news is uh, Dr. Craig Schramm, who retired as Division Chief of Pulmonary Medicine a few months ago, uh, was also uh, a, a approved to uh, be an Emeritus Professor at the Yukon School of Medicine. And, uh, and that was also a fantastic thing for, for Craig. Craig, for so many years of uh, really playing an incredible role as a Chief of Pulmonary, of pulmonary Medicine and uh, moving forward at educational and research uh, programs at the Yukon Health Center. And he will continue to do that in, in his role as Emeritus Professor. Uh, Craig also uh, is still working with us uh, in the sleep medicine lab within the Division of Pulmonary Medicine. So, Craig, congratulations to you, Michelle and Lori. It's just great to share good news with, with all of you. Now, today, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Zemsky to introduce our speaker. Uh, and Bill needs no introduction. He seems to be everywhere. Uh, he's one of those people that you find everywhere and, and seems to pop up in every Zoom meeting that I've had lately. And it's always good because, you know, he's someone that when you see, it gives you great comfort. It's, uh, you know, just a, an unbelievably uh, wonderful person who is uh, a leader in, in pain uh, at a national and international level. Uh, and he has created a, an outstanding division of pain and palliative care. And today he's uh, inviting one of his colleagues, uh, Dr. Zoftness, who will speak about uh, uh, the bridging the gap between medicine and psychology and pediatric pain. And I know you will enjoy this, but please use the Q&A session at the end to ask questions. And uh, I'm going to ask Bill to come up and make the introductions. Bill? Thank you, Juan. Good morning, everyone. Um, I wish that uh, Rachel could join us in person today uh, because I think I really missed out last night and not being able to join her for a nice uh, dinner before Grand Rounds. She's uh, really a remarkable uh, woman and psychologist. Uh, I will say that the first two times I met Rachel, it was at uh, Disneyland and Atlantis in the Bahamas. I'm not sure if that says more about her or me. Um, and I, I'm going to go off her script that she sent me to introduce uh, her, but just talk. I think the title of her talk is really uh, wonderful because Rachel's all about bridging the gap, both between medicine and psychology, but also between psychologists and uh, the public in general. Rachel uh, has done amazing work. She's not a researcher, but what she does is take evidence base, the evidence base of psychology and translate it into understandable bits that folks can understand. And 
She's uh, has a course that two of my uh, colleagues in the, our division, one uh, Kelly Maines and one Kim Harris-Eaton, have joined to learn more about pain psychology. Rachel also wrote a wonderful workbook, uh, which is called uh, the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens, which is the first workbook. It's a how-to guide for teens with pain to learn uh, skills, skill-based learning on how better to control their pain. And in that uh, vein, she also writes a column for Psychology Today called Pain Explained. So taking the science of pain, putting it into understandable language that uh, folks can uh, uh, learn from. So I want to uh, please uh, join me in welcoming Rachel Zofnis uh, for Grand Rounds today. Thank you. Okay, I'm sharing my screen or attempting to. Is it working? Can everybody see? Nicole, are you able to see my slides? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All right. Great. Okay, nice to meet you, everybody. My name is Rachel Zafnis, like Bill said. Um, I'm a pediatric pain psychologist and an assistant clinical professor at the UCSF School of Medicine, where I teach pain education to medical residents. What Bill did not tell you is that we met at two amazing pain conferences. It was not random, and Bill and I do not randomly go to kitty theme parks together, because that would be really weird. So, um, so I am a New Yorker natively, so I talk really fast. I'm going to try to speak slowly. You have my permission to unmute and yell at me if I talk too fast. Okay. Disclosures, I'm the author of the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens, which Bill mentioned. The objectives, hopefully you saw. And like any good talk, of course, we are gonna start with a case example because what is grand rounds without a case example? All right, JM, 16 year old Caucasian male, by the way, I wanna encourage everybody to please use the q and I'm big on questions, I love them. Pain is really confusing. If you have any questions or comments, please use the q and I'm all about it. All right, JM, 16-year-old Caucasian male. When I got him, he had multiple medical diagnoses, including chronic migraine, cyclical vomiting, and amplified pain. He'd been homebound for about four years, pretty much in bed that entire time. He had seen more than 14 physicians, and he had been on more than 40 medications for his pain, including Thorazine. If you've heard of Thorazine, it is a medication that we psychologists and psychiatrists use to uh, sedate um, adults having psychotic episodes on inpatient units. It's a pretty intense drug to give to a child with pain. Humble opinion submitted. Uh, he was too fatigued and sick to study or socialize. He was therefore at a seventh grade education level did not have friends, he was not getting exercise, he was not going outside. I wanna describe him to you so you have a sense of what this child looked like. When he came into my office, he had long unwashed hair. He was puffy and white because he hadn't gone out uh, of his house and he rocked himself back and forth on the couch because the pain was so bad. That's what JM looked like when he walked into my office. All right, this looks like it's a little bit in the way, that's okay. So let's take a moment to talk about pain. What is pain? Pain is the number one reason that the kiddos we see come to see us. However, even though we know that that's a thing, 
There is insufficient pain education across disciplines. That includes medicine. It includes psychology as well. However, 96% of medical schools in the United States and Canada have zero dedicated compulsory pain education. 96% of med schools in our country have zero compulsory pain education. No wonder there's a problem here. So IASP, the International Association for the Study of Pain, defines pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. Now, if you are a patient, particularly if you are a child, this does not mean anything to you. What does it mean that pain might be emotional? What does it mean that you might have pain with potential tissue damage? That's very confusing. So I'm gonna to submit to you an additional definition. I made it up, here it is. Pain is your body's warning system. It is an evolutionary response to perceived or actual danger. And it changes your behavior to protect you because that is pain's job. It is pain's job to protect you. And what I like about these two definitions together is that they really highlight the role of beliefs and perceptions and context when it comes to pain. And by that, I mean, they really highlight the role of the brain in pain because pain is not exclusively in the body. It is very easy to believe that if your back hurts, your pain lives in your back. Or if you have knee pain, that means there's something definitely wrong with your knee and the pain is just coming from your knee. However, we know science tells us that that is not true. Pain does not live exclusively in the body. One of the reasons we know this is because of a condition known as phantom limb pain. And phantom limb pain is when an accident or trauma victim loses a limb and they continue to have terrible pain in the missing body part. If pain lived exclusively in the body, no limb should mean no pain. And because that is not true, because pain persists, even in a missing body part, we know that pain is also constructed by the brain. Let's look at a couple of examples. I am all about clinical examples from the literature. I'm gonna give you two of my favorites. I call this a tale of two nails. I hope you are sitting down and drinking coffee because it is too early for bourbon. If it were in the afternoon, I would recommend bourbon. A tale of two nails, tale number one, comes from the British Medical Journal in 1995. Here's what it says. A 29-year-old construction worker jumped off a plank straight onto a seven-inch nail, and it went right through his boot straight out the other side. This is an actual picture of his boot. He was in terrible, terrible pain. His colleagues rushed him to the emergency room where he was sedated right away with intravenous fentanyl, I believe, and the good doctors removed his boot and they discovered that a miracle had occurred. The nail had passed between the space between his toes and had emerged through the other side of his boot without puncturing his skin. There was no wound, there was no injury, there was no blood, no tissue damage, but his pain was real. How is that possible? How did that happen? Well, I'll tell you. His brain used all available information, which is the brain's job. It used context, so knowledge of his dangerous work environment and memories of past pain experiences on the job site. 
and it used his five senses, including this visual that you can see of a nail sticking out of the top of his foot. It also incorporated thoughts and emotions, including the panic that he was feeling. And because his brain perceived potential threat of danger to his body, it made pain to protect him. Because again, that is pain's job, to protect your body. Tale of nail number one. Here is tale of nails, our tale of nail number two. This is from the Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine, 2007. What I wanna to say to all of you watching this, if any of you are nerds like me, I am a nerd, hello. And you wanna read a really good paper, this paper by Dimsdale and Dancer, 2007, Journal of Psychosomatic Medicine is one of my all-time favorites. It's phenomenal. They reported that another construction worker, because that is the world's most dangerous job apparently, was on a job site using a nail gun and the nail gun discharged. And the man saw the nail shoot across the room and bury in the wall across from him. But you know, it ricocheted backwards, the nail gun ricocheted backwards and clocked him in the face. So he had a mild toothache and he had a headache but he continued on with work and life for about six days. And then he said to his wife, you know, I think I'm gonna get this toothache checked out. And he went to the dentist and the good doctor did a scan of his patient's face and discovered, much to both men's surprise, that there was a four inch nail buried in his head. This is an actual scan of the patient's uh, face. And you can see that the nail uh, extends up into his cerebral cortex. That's right. So real danger, real damage, but very little pain. What happened? How is that possible? The man had a false perception of safety. He saw the nail travel out of the gun and bury in the wall across the room. So his brain, of course, used all available information, contextual and emotional and physical clues, but it failed to trip the pain alarm. And this is important information for us as health providers. And the important take home here is the pain system can and does fail. Like every system in the body, the pain system is fallible. So what are the conclusions we can draw from pain science given these classic examples? One, pain is both physical and emotional 100% of the time. It's not that pain is mental or that pain is physical, no. It's always both, all the time. We're gonna talk about why. We're gonna go down the rabbit hole of pain neuroscience. Two, pain, this experience we call pain, requires sensory input from both the body and the brain, as well as contextual input from the larger environment. Every painful experience that you have and that your patient has requires sensory input from both brain and body and the larger environment around them. It's never just one thing. That is not how pain works. Conclusion number three, this is a big one. Pain is not an accurate indicator of tissue damage. The amount of pain that you have is not proportional to the degree of injury. You can have pain in the absence of damage, like a nail to the boot, but not the foot. And you can have no pain or very little pain in the presence of damage, like a four inch nail to the face. All right. So our current model for treating pain and the way we have treated pain for many decades is the biomedical model. 
And what that means is when we see someone in pain, we throw pills and procedures at it. We have been doing this for very many decades, but it is not working. It is not working. The prevalence of chronic pain is on the rise. It's not decreasing. And here we are in the midst of an opioid epidemic because we treat pain with pills and we need alternatives. Science tells us that pain is not actually biomedical. We've been doing it wrong. Pain instead is what we call biopsychosocial. And therefore the most effective treatment for pain for any of our patients has to be biopsychosocial. And what this means is that there's three equally important domains that we need to target if we actually want our patients to get better. Let's look at those. Here we go. Here is a picture of pain, believe it or not. This is the biopsychosocial model of pain. And you can see there's three domains we need to target for our patients to get well. The top domain is the one we all know the most about, the bio, the biological, biomedical domain of pain. It includes a lot of important things, genetics and tissue damage, system dysfunction, inflammation, diet, exercise, and sleep. Of course, critically important when it comes to pain. But I want you to notice something. Two-thirds of pain is not bio. If we focus exclusively on the biological or biomedical domain of pain, we are missing two-thirds of the pain problem. So the other domain of pain, the psychological domain of pain, much stigmatized, includes thoughts and beliefs, memories and emotions, and coping behaviors. In other words, what do we do with the pain once we have it? And as we saw with the tales of nails, thoughts, beliefs, memories, and emotions count a lot when it comes to the experience of pain. And then we have the social or the sociological domain of pain. And this bubble, by the way, is quite literally everything else. Socioeconomic status, access to care, culture, religion, family and friends, hobbies, race and ethnicity, social media, context and environment. Context and environment, that's everything else. So all three of these domains are critically important when it comes to the experience of pain. Let's keep talking about why. All right, so I'm gonna to talk to you today about CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy for pain, psychology treatment for pain, sounds completely crazy. We're going to talk about why it's effective and how. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is an evidence-based treatment not only for pain, but also for anxiety and depression and sleep issues, family dysfunction, and trauma. And it surprises nobody on this call today that all of those things are critically important when it comes to pain, especially if we're looking at it from a biopsychosocial perspective, which we always want to do. CBT ably bridges the gap between medicine and psychology, which is why I like it so much. I always want to live in that space. It is skills-based and it involves a lot of home practice. I try very hard never to call it homework because no child would ever talk to me ever again, but a lot happens in the space between sessions. CBT emphasizes a return to function, a return to school and work, and a return to play. And it teaches us that thoughts, and feelings, both emotional and physical, and behaviors are all interconnected. So let's look at the CBT pain cycle. All of our patients, all of them, are in some version of this cycle. And we don't have to call this the CBT pain cycle. We can just call it the pain cycle. Here's how the pain cycle works. You think a thought, oftentimes with chronic pain, 
Thoughts are very negative. Upon thinking a thought, you experience an emotion. Emotions, as we're gonna talk about, live not just in the head, but also in the body and result in physical symptoms. And because you're thinking thoughts, feeling emotions and feeling physical symptoms, you engage in certain behaviors. What I want you to notice about this cycle is that everything affects everything. Thoughts affect emotions, emotions affect bodily symptoms, bodily symptoms affect behaviors in any and every direction. There's no one starting point. And the thing that we're always trying to do in cognitive behavioral therapy or in any treatment for pain, hopefully, is go after these four different domains and knock them out and see where we can make changes and start doing things differently. Let's look at a case example of the pain cycle. So back to our friend JM, reminder, 16 year old kiddo who had been in bed for about four years, who had seen more than 14 physicians and had been on 40 pills for pain. The CBT cycle starts with a thought. We call these thoughts, especially the automatic negative thoughts, cognitive distortions. Why? Because we erroneously tend to believe the things we think. For some reason, we assume that because it happens between the space between our ears, that it's actually true. That is not true. Many of the things we think are complete and utter BS. They are distorted thoughts. So for JM, we were able to tease out the thought, I'm broken, I'll never get better. That is a very common thought for anyone, child or adult, who's been living with pain for a long time. Now, my uh, neighbor has a bumper sticker and it says, don't believe everything you think. And I live by that. Don't believe everything you think, but many of our patients do. Now, you're a 16 year old kid. You're thinking I'm broken, I'll never get better. You're supposed to be thinking about, you know, um, prom and who's snapping you on Snapchat and um, maybe where your next pair of ripped jeans are coming from. But you're thinking I'm broken, I'll never get better instead. How does that make you feel? It normally and naturally is going to make you feel sad and frustrated and angry and overwhelmed and panicky. And what I wanna say about this constellation of emotions that we see in our kiddos living with chronic pain and chronic illness is that that is normal. I am much more worried about the kiddos who come into my office having been in pain for many years, having no life and all their hobbies taken away from them and they tell me they're perfectly fine. So what I wanna tell you about this constellation of anxious and sad emotions that you will often see is that this is not necessarily mental illness, no. That's where a lot of the stigma with chronic pain comes from. This is what we call a normal emotional response to an abnormal situation. The body is not built to be in pain day in and day out for many years. Of course, our patients are gonna be anxious and depressed. This is not necessarily mental illness. This is what I call a situational trigger. When the pain and illness resolve, typically the anxiety and depression also resolve. So just a red flag warning that your patients may not be mentally ill. Okay, you're thinking this thought, I'm broken, I'll never get better. You're feeling as a result, panicky and anxious and depressed and frustrated and scared. How does your body respond as a result? What we noticed in JM was that his symptoms really spiked. When his emotions got negative, his headaches got worse, he vomited more, he had more diffuse amplified body pain, and he noticed what he was describing as panic symptoms. And I wanna teach this to you the way I teach it to my patients, and I'll tell you why. As providers, language is so important, 
And I think it's really important that we're using language that our patients, especially our pediatric patients understand. So I'm gonna advance the slide and come back to this one. All right, so again, I'm gonna say this to you the way I say it to my kiddos. Emotions do not just live in your head. Emotions also come out in the body. Science tells us that emotions are physical. If you've ever had butterflies in your stomach, maybe before giving grand rounds, those are emotions coming out in your body. Emotions manifest physically. Descartes is dead. There is no brain-body divide. That is not a thing. So it's really important for us to promote and teach to our patients that negative emotions, believe it or not, can cause pain. Negative emotions can trigger flare-ups. Negative emotions can exacerbate the symptoms of an underlying condition. And negative emotions can maintain pain. If you've ever had a tension headache, you've ever vomited before a big event and felt nauseous and stomach achy, you know that negative emotions, of course, affect your body. But our families that we work with do not know about this relationship. So uh, this is my plea. I know you guys, most of you, did not sign up to be educators. You signed up to be physicians and health providers. But we are educators. In fact, we are the first stop on the train for most of our patients. So something that you get to do early on in session is educate and normalize some of these things. One, you get to teach patients that emotions manifest physically. There should not be any stigma around this. For some reason, there's this word somatic that has become a bad word in medicine. Soma literally means of the body. Of course, emotions are of the body. They're neurotransmitters and hormones. Of course, they're of the body. There is no brain-body disconnect. Our patients don't know that. Thing two that you get to teach is that anxiety and low mood in the face of chronic pain and illness is not necessarily a mental illness. Let's get rid of the stigma. And number three, we get to teach our patients that a biopsychosocial issue like pain requires a biopsychosocial solution. And if patients understand that their emotions are affecting their body, they're gonna be more likely to engage in whatever biopsychosocial treatments you recommend. All right, we're going backwards like promised. So JM, thoughts, emotions, body responding to emotions, of course. The cycle is circling around. So he's engaging in particular behaviors because of these thoughts and feelings. And like many of the kiddos we see, he's in what we call avoidance mode. He is avoiding school. He is avoiding social activities. He's not getting very much exercise or sunlight. He's on screens and in bed pretty much all day. His sleep is terrible. He's napping during the day and he's up till four in the morning. His diet is horrible. And what I wanna say about this is, this avoidance cycle that we see so commonly is also totally normal. Why? Because when your body is stressed, and by the way, being in a state of chronic pain is absolutely a state of stress on the human body, your body goes into what we call fight or flight. And flight is quite literally avoidance. I want to avoid the thing that's causing me pain. So our kiddos, of course, are trying to protect their bodies. So now that he's been in bed for four years and he's not doing anything, he has no friends, he's not exercising, he's not engaged in hobbies, what is he thinking now? He's thinking, pain has taken everything away from me. And he is understandably feeling hopeless and powerless. That is a classic example of the pain cycle. Now, I often get asked, what does psychology and what does CBT have to do with pain? My child's problem is real. It's a biomedical physiological problem. Why in God's name would I send her to a psychologist? Now, 
What parents are really asking you when they ask you this question is, are you saying my child is crazy? Are you saying it's all in her head? Are you saying her pain isn't real? And that's not what you're saying. That is not what you're saying. I hope that's not what you're saying. But the stigma is a real barrier to treatment. We need to do something about the stigma and the perceived stigma. So I wanna give you a tip that I hope you will steal and use. When you refer to any non-farm provider, be it a pain psychologist or a CBT therapist or an OT or PT or anyone who's not considered a physician where there might be some stigma, I want you to call that person a pain coach, particularly with therapy and CBT. You say, I want to send you to a pain coach. And here's the way, the language that I use, which you're again, welcome to steal, ready? If it's okay to go to a soccer coach to get better at soccer, it is surely okay to go to a pain coach to get better at living with pain because dealing with pain is really hard and you deserve support. That works every single time. It takes the sting out of being referred to a therapist for pain. The other thing that I do with 100% of my patients is I teach the real biological connection between emotions and pain. So um, I hope you're ready to be nerdy with me just for a little while, because again, I am a nerd. All right, back in 1965, these two wonderful scientists, Melzack and Wall, came up with the gate control theory of pain, which forever revolutionized the way we thought about pain. It has since evolved into the neuromatrix theory of pain, and it continues to evolve as science evolves. And here's what it tells us. It tells us that there is no one single pain center in the brain, no. Instead, pain is what we call a diffuse neurological process. And what that means is there's lots of parts of the brain that process this experience we call pain. And there's three parts in particular that I wanna tell you about. One is your cerebral cortex. That is the part of your brain responsible for your thoughts. By the way, I explain this in this way to every kiddo that comes into my office because they deserve to understand their pain and this makes sense to them. Cerebral cortex, part of your brain responsible for thoughts. Your prefrontal cortex, responsible for attentional processes and executive functioning. And your brain's limbic system. Your brain's limbic system is your brain's emotion center. Your brain's emotion center. All those parts of your brain together, including additional parts of the brain, create this experience that we call pain. And what this means, my friends, is that pain is both physical and emotional 100% of the time. Pain is never not emotional. The sensory messages from your body get filtered through your brain's limbic system 100% of the time before they become the experience that you call pain. So your pain always is emotional. Emotional pain is physical pain. So how does this work? All right, so I came up with a metaphor. This is um, a metaphor that I find works really well with kiddos. I've tested it out on kids as young as eight uh, and it works every time. And parents also really appreciate any sort of explanation you can give them as to what's going on with their child. So I want you to imagine that you have a pain dial in your central nervous system. It's much like the volume knob on a car stereo and volume can be turned up and volume can be turned down based on lots of different things. So I wanna tell you about three things in particular that can change the pain volume. Ready? Stress and anxiety 
changes your pain volume. Mood, high or low, emotions change pain volume. And three is attention. What you're focusing on can change pain volume. And I'm gonna tell you exactly how this works. Now, when stress and anxiety are high, your body is tense and tight and your thoughts are worried, your brain sends a message to your pain dial, turning it way up. So whatever pain you had before, when you're stressed or anxious, for example, like during a pandemic or when school is canceled and you can't see your friends, pain is amplified. Pain feels worse when stress and anxiety are high. Two, mood. When mood is low, you're miserable and depressed and your emotions are negative or you're angry, feeling really rageful. Your limbic system sends a message to your pain dial, turning it way up. Pain is amplified when mood is low and emotions are negative. Three is attention. So when you are at home, in bed, focusing on your pain, you're not going outside, you're not engaging in activities, you're not involved in your hobbies, your prefrontal cortex sends a message to your pain dial, turning it way up. Pain feels worse when you are focused on it. However, child with pain, the reason this is good news is because the opposite is also true. When stress and anxiety are low, your body is relaxed and your thoughts are calm. Your brain sends a message to your pain dial, turning it down. Pain feels less bad when you are calm and relaxed. Thing two is mood. When your mood is high, you are happy. You are doing fun things. You are engaged in pleasurable activities. Your limbic system turns down pain volume. So pain feels less bad. And three is attention. When you are distracted, you are so absorbed in some activity that you can forget about your pain. That is not magic. That is your pain dial. That is your prefrontal cortex turning down pain volume. So when you are distracted and absorbed in activities, pain feels less bad. Now, why do I submit to you very humbly that it is critically important for us to explain pain, not just to our patients, by the way, but also to each other as health providers? Reason one is because Pain takes away power. That's just what it does. When a child is in pain, she feels like she has all of her life taken away from her. Her body is no longer doing what she wants it to do. She can no longer engage in all of the activities that she wants to engage in. She feels oftentimes powerless. When you explain the pain dial to a child, to a family, what you're actually doing is giving them their power back. That is an amazing gift. That is an amazing gift to give a child in pain. I'm gonna take a drink of water because dry throat. Good, power. We always wanna give the power back to our patients. Reason number two, this is very important to teach is because what you are actually doing when you explain pain in this way is you are giving patients a biopsychosocial framework, not only for their pain, but for their treatment. You are explaining that thoughts and emotions and behaviors affect their experience of pain and that if you effectively want to treat their pain, we have to go after all of those components and they are much more likely to seek out someone like me or to try biofeedback or to try and stay engaged in PT, for example, if you've given them this metaphor. So I told you we would be talking about CBT and I have been tricking you. We have been talking about CBT for the last 30 minutes. CBT has four primary components. The first component is what we've been doing. 
Pain education is critical if you wanna treat someone living with pain. People have to understand their bodies first before you can treat anything. So psychoeducation is huge. We teach the pain dial and the relationship between emotions and pain. We teach a lot of other concepts like hurt versus harm and sensitization, which is a thing that happens to brain and body, especially with chronic pain. And of course we teach lifestyle factors back to the bio domain of pain, sleep hygiene and nutrition and exercise, huge components of pain management. The second thing we do in CBT is we go after behavioral strategies. The way I say this to my patients is, what are we doing that's not working and what can we do differently? If you remember the CBT pain cycle, coping behaviors affect everything else, thoughts and emotions and body. So we teach strategies for pain management, including pacing for pain. And pacing for pain is much like pacing for a marathon. You would not tell someone to go outside and run 26 miles tomorrow because they would die. Actually, you, you guys probably wouldn't, but I would, I would. So pacing for pain is much like pacing for a marathon. It's little bits at a time, gradually in increasing the brain and body's exposure to stimulation. We also teach relaxation strategies to lower pain volume and mindfulness. There's a treatment for pain called MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which has an abundance of literature and evidence for pain management. We teach distraction strategies, of course, to engage the prefrontal cortex. We also teach in certain CBT protocols, especially the one I use, a treatment called biofeedback. I happen to really love biofeedback. And if we had more time, I could tell you more about it. Biofeedback in essence is a treatment or a treatment strategy in which kids learn how to make unconscious processes conscious. So they learn to control their hand temperature and their heart rate and their muscle tension throughout their body. And as you might imagine, that profoundly impacts the pain they feel. The third thing we do in CBT is we teach cognitive strategies. So we teach kids to think about their thinking and how their thoughts impact their pain. So with JM, he was thinking, I'm broken, I'll never get better. And that was torpedoing his improvement. So we help kids identify things we call thinking traps, like I'm broken, I'll never get better. It's a lie, but it sounds true. And so we believe it. And we teach kids to use strategies called self-talk and coping statements talking back to the pain voice that lives in your head and is saying horrible negative things to you. And the fourth thing we do in CBT, which is critically important, is parent training, parent training. So in any given moment, just to tell you, I am always treating a family where I'm just seeing the parents. I am just seeing the parents and the kiddos are getting better. The role of parents and family in pediatric pain is not to be ignored. There is an abundance of literature on that as well. So we teach parents to help with help decrease anxiety contagion. If a parent is panicking, you bet your ass a kid is pan panicking. We help teach limits and positive reinforcement. And we encourage the development of child independence and confidence in the face of pain and illness. We could do a couple of hours on that alone and I'm happy to if you want to. So back to our case example, our friend JM. We did a cocktail of psychoeducation about pain, a lot of cognitive restructuring. One of the coping thoughts that JM came up with was, I've had 80 pain flares this year alone. I've survived all of them. I'll survive this one too. We used a lot of behavioral strategies. We came up with what I like to call the five things plan. 
The five things plan was done in conjunction with his parents. JM had to do five things every day to help his pain in order to earn his screens. No screens unless he did five things a day to help his pain. And they came from our biopsychosocial menu. We also engaged in activity pacing and relaxation strategies and a lot of other coping tools. And of course, a healthy dose of parent training. And here's what happened. Here's what happened. As JM improved functioning slowly, little bits at a time, and as he noticed that his anxiety started going down as he did a little bit more every day, and as his mood improved as he did a little bit more every day and started going outside and moving his body and getting some sunlight and engaging socially again with his friends, a miracle occurred. His pain started going down, his symptoms started improving, he eventually got a tutor and caught up in school. He eventually started walking around the block, then running around the block, and then running a mile a day. He rejoined his soccer team. He graduated high school last year, and he got up on stage and he said, if you had told me four years ago I'd be graduating high school, I would not have believed you. And we all cried, including me. And he sent me an email recently telling me that he uh, was elected captain of his ulti ultimate value of uh, ultimate Frisbee team in college. That was pretty rad. So, so what I want to say to you is CBT for pain works. It's real. You're not treating psychological pain. You're actually treating physical pain. You're treating the body because there is no brain body divide. So no child need ever have only one domain of health treated while the other two are ignored. It doesn't work. It's time to change the way we treat pain. So if you really want to get me angry, we can talk about affordability and accessibility. Things like CBT for pain, as you all know, are often not reimbursed by insurance, which is something that we all need to work on changing. So for a lot of the families we see, they cannot afford someone like me, and that is not fair. CBT and all treatments for pain should be accessible and affordable. So I wrote a workbook. It's everything I do in my practice. It's pain education, cognitive strategies, behavioral strategies, all the strategies. It's 17 bucks on Amazon. Every family should be able to afford effective evidence-based care. I'm gonna stop there before I get angry. That is my soapbox. Everyone deserves to afford accessible, digestible care for pain. All right, so I am very collaborative and I like having friends and colleagues and Bill Zemsky can attest to this. So I have a very nerdy website. It's my last name, it's right there, zofnis.com. And on that page, you can find obviously contact info for me, but also there's a resources page. I've spent something like a decade putting together resources for providers and patients. There's a lot of kid-friendly websites. There are apps, there are uh, books, there are um, articles, journal articles. There's a ton of stuff on there. There's stuff for providers, there's stuff for parents, and there's stuff for patients. So I hope you will go check it out, zofnis.com. You'll see a resources page. If you wanna get in touch with me, my email address is up here. Um, I'm sort of new to social media, but especially during COVID, I found it a really wonderful way to meet and connect with colleagues who are also treating pain. So please find me on Twitter and um, friend me. I guess that's not how that works, but you know what I mean. Um, and I would love to talk with you and collaborate with you. You're welcome to reach out to me. Uh, as Bill mentioned, I also am teaching workshops. So if you have any trainees or if you yourself would like to learn more about pain, I'm giving workshops on pain and it's not just how pain works and it's not just strategies, it's language that we can use with our patients to help them buy into a biopsychosocial model of treatment 
and evidence-based effective strategies that we as providers can recommend. Awesome. So I'm going to stop the share. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. That was uh, yeah. outstanding. Um, I had a little bit of a toothache today. It's gone now uh, from, the, from the presentation. I, I moved it to my limbic system, I guess, or something like that. Uh, really appreciate your presentation. We have a, we have a number of questions for you. And, and then uh, if we can't get through all of them, which we should, then, uh, then we'll, we'll ask you to send response by email. So from uh, the first one is from uh, Dr. John Brancato, who is uh, one of our emergency medicine physicians. What's the best response to this cycle when the patient arrives in the ED at 11 p.m. on a Friday evening due to their pain? Right. Um, Dr. John, you ask a really good question. Um, the answer is when it's an acute pain episode, you're not going to go through this rigmarole with them. That's not realistic. It makes no sense. And when they're in an acute state, they're not open to hearing about it. So um, I should say I have the luxury of being able to take a step back um, and see patients when they're usually not in an acute state. If they're in an acute state, you don't go down this rabbit hole. You wait for a period of time when they have some capacity to hear you and to learn about their pain. The first question I ask my patients when they come into my office is, has anyone ever explained pain to you? And 100% of them say no. And then I ask if they'd like to, to know. So um, yeah, if they're in an acute state in the ED, this is not the time. Um, but there are ways to, even in an acute state, there are ways to break the cycle. Like you give a kid a screen, you try and break you try and give them a distraction strategy. Like there are definitely strategies for acute pain that you can use in the ED, definitely. And distraction is actually my favorite, especially screen-based, believe it or not. Bill, any comment on that? No, I, I think she's actually right. I think Rachel, John was uh, talking about some of the kids, you know, that have chronic pain that uh, come to the emergency department. And I think that's really the message that there's nothing you're gonna do in that acute situation to change things immediately. We do have a, a, some great resources locally, obviously, that can uh, support these patients. And I encourage you to uh, obviously evaluate the medical uh, uh, issues and then help transition that patient to a place where they can get the help they need. Thank you. The, the next one is from one of our pain psychologists, Emily Wakefield, who is, is more of a comment, says, I have more of a comment. Language is so important. You demonstrated such a great way to break down the complexity of the biopsychosocial and how to reduce the stigma of psychology in patient-friendly ways. You're such a rock star. Thank you. Hi, Emily Wakefield. <laughs> the, uh, the next one is, well, they actually want your phone number for consultation for telemed, so we'll leave it at that, and we'll, you know, obviously the information is available. From uh, one of our pediatricians, excellent talk. I wonder if you can comment on the nature of the stimulus that causes pain and the resultant response of the child. For example, I have seen a few children with complex regional pain syndrome following injuries like ankle sprains, but I have never seen a similar response following vaccine administration. Related to this, do you think that as we see injuries in children, then one should wait to see the pain response in the child or might one introduce a biosocial psychological script that may mitigate the child's pain response. So it's a long, it's a long-winded question, but can you comment on the nature of the stimulus that causes pain and the re and the resultant response of the child? I admittedly, I'm not sure I understand the question. Let me take that. A little bit of a stab at that. So I think there's periods of vulnerability. You know, you ask why usually immunization wouldn't uh, precipitate complex regional pain syndrome, but a, a minor injury would. First of all, I think there's some developmental periods of vulnerability. Uh, most likely young, early preteens or most vulnerability for CRPS. And I think there's a developmental window in some 
uh, pre-existing wiring, uh, to use probably oh. one of Rachel's terms. That oh, would I understand. I understand the question now. Okay. Go ahead, Rachel. Take it from there. Okay, I got, I got it. Okay, so with CRPS or other more chronic conditions, the answer is I would... I tend to always explain the biopsychosocial model of pain. I always want to give that tool to every family because pain is a ubiquitous human experience. We all deserve to understand our pain. So I always want to explain pain to everybody. But with something like CRPS, what we think is happening is this sensitization process, right? So with an acute injection, oftentimes that's not the process. Um, but if someone's dealing with CRPS, I always end up teaching a concept called sensitization. So I'm just going to give you a two second if you want to use this, you're welcome to. I always ask my patients to tell me about something that they've practiced over time, any skill, any anything that they practiced over time and got good at, like playing the piano. And then I explain back to them, the, the pathways in your brain are much like the muscles in your body. The more you use them, the bigger and stronger they get, right? So if you practice piano a lot, the piano pathway in your brain gets really big and strong. When you have pain for many, many, many months, like with CRPS, the pain pathway in your brain has gotten really big and strong. And when that happens, we know that your brain has become sensitive to pain and brain and body can both become sensitized to pain. That's a thing that happens. So with conditions like CRPS, I'm often explaining some processes, which is what I think what you're asking about. So with chronic pain in particular, I'm always explaining this brain and body sensitization process in addition to the biopsychosocial model because I want them to buy in to an integrative treatment. I hope that was useful. Thank you. And uh, this is from one of our rheumatologists, Dr. Zemmel, since we can't clone you to populate 169 Connecticut towns, what must we do to increase access to skilled pain psychologists? How do we increase the number of therapists? And that's for, for you and for Bill, I guess, would be the question. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And it's something that I think we all struggle with. I always want more people to refer to, and it's really frustrating. I, I try and send some of my patients to my colleagues and they say, no, I don't treat pain you know, listen, it's not rocket science. The other reason I wrote the workbook is because I want to put it in the hands of any therapist. Literally any therapist can pick up the workbook and now they have a protocol for treating pediatric pain. It is not rocket science. It has all the language for explaining pain and literally all the techniques I use in my practice. That's part of the reason I wrote it. All we need is therapists or treatment protocols. That's all we need. So yes, more therapists need to be trained. You can send them to me. I'm doing a lot of trainings. But, but you, you just hit the nail on the head. The system is broken. Psychologists in general don't get trained in pain. Why? Because in, in Western medicine, either you have emotional pain and you see a therapist or you have physical pain and you see a physician. So physicians aren't really being trained in pain. Psychologists aren't really being trained in pain. So there's sort of this black hole and a lack of clinicians trained in pain. You're right. We need more training. You are right. Let me uh, tag on to that, and I'm going to thank Larry for this softball because uh, we are developing uh, ways to get more treatment to more patients. We just launched a program, Rochelle DeMeo and uh, Tim Levine just uh, launched our program we're calling Headstrong. It's an eight-session virtual group uh, program for kids with chronic headache that melds the medical and the behavioral together, as, as Rachel would uh, uh, be a fan of to get that treatment out into the community. We're really taking advantage of some of the virtual health. We have some other um, opportunities that we're developing to, again to do group programs for kids with chronic pain. 
And the other thing that's now out there, there's there's an app actually, if, if you want to look at it on your phone called WebMap, W-E-B-M-A-P. I know Rachel is familiar with it. It's a cognitive behavioral therapy uh, program in an app form. It's free to download. Uh, we were involved in some of the initial studies. It was developed by Tanya Palermo out in Seattle. And in fact, we're now looking at a study. I have a grant application in, fingers crossed, to look at WebMap before the, the adolescent ever gets to our pain clinic. So to evaluate that uh, in, a, in a framework where a pediatrician could give that child that uh, tool and help them learn how to become their own pain coach. Great. Um, there, there a lot of kudos here. The uh, Kimberly Harris Eaton, the wonderful presentation course is great. Um, another one is, I love what you say. Uh, this is, I guess, a comment and a question. Um, I love that you say screens are a great distraction technique for acute episodes of chronic pain. I often have heard physicians refer to a cell phone sign as being an indication a patient's pain is blown out of proportion, and that thinking really needs to end. So comment on, on the use of media, I guess, uh, from your perspective, Rachel. Um, yeah, so I, in my mind, there's a distinction between an acute episode and a child with chronic pain. And of course, a child with chronic pain can have an acute episode. So uh, again, I do think screens are great for acute episodes. They're great distraction strategies. They're great for emotion regulation, believe it or not. Um, but I also see kiddos with chronic pain who have been in bed for very many months and sometimes years and screens have become their primary, if only way that they're regulating their pain. Um, I do believe that screen addiction is real. I didn't for a long time and now I do. Screen addiction is really, it's real and it's intense, especially during COVID. But pre-COVID, I was treating screen addiction as much as I was treating pain. So what I do now is I encourage families to use screens as rewards for when their child engages in healthy coping pain behaviors. So we teach a lot of strategies and the strategies don't get used. And one way of getting kiddos to engage in their own treatment, like Bill said, and become their own pain coaches is to reward them with screen use after they engage in healthy strategies for pain management. So that's where the five things plan came up from, came up, came up from, came up with, yes, whatever. The five things plan was born when we realized that we needed to get our kiddos to do five things every day on their own in order to earn their screens. And that that was sufficient reward to encourage motivation to engage in treatment. So screens are actually really useful, I find, with kids when used well. Thanks. Uh, another thanks, Rachel. Given that many resources for kids are limited due to the pandemic, are there any new or creative socially distanced suggestions you have found useful over the last several months? Yeah. Do you mean interventions for pain? Yeah, do you yeah probably, inter you know, socially distanced because some of them probably do require contact with other people. Yeah, right. So, I mean, pain psychologists are, it's, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, you can see pain psychologists now anywhere. So I live normally in California. So I, I can see patients all over California virtually. They don't have to come to my office. So you can see therapists virtually. That's obviously a great idea. Biofeedback, which I absolutely am in love with, can be done virtually as well. There are, you can buy online um, tools to measure finger temperature. There are apps that measure uh, heart rate and muscle tension that you can just access on your phone. There are a lot of apps that you can use on your phone. Um, again, that dorky website I mentioned, my, just my last name, it has a ton of resources. WebMap, which Bill mentioned, is a great resource. Um, yeah, and I'm also, by the way, encouraging all of my patients, and, and you guys do not need to do this if you don't agree, 
to actually have social interaction distanced outside and masked. I think one of the biggest problems for our kiddos with pain is isolation. And that's really bad for them emotionally, physically, in all the ways. So I'm encouraging all of them to make plans and go outside with people, even if it's a socially distanced walk. Like these kids need each other. They need to be outside. They need to be in community. So I think there are safe ways to do it. Great, thanks. From one of our developmental pediatricians, do you have any children's books you recommend or other anticipatory guidance for helping sensitive, but otherwise typically developing children develop healthy coping skills? Um, yeah, children's books. There's a book called Be the Boss of Your Pain, which I happen to really love. Um, the book I wrote is a teen workbook, so it's totally friendly for kids. Uh, there is... I think there's a book, I, I'm, I'm blanking right now. There's a book called Imagine a Rainbow, which I think is an imagery-based book for kids with pain. Um, there's a bunch. Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah, so we, we can, maybe you can give us, um, we, we can send those by email to everyone. Okay. Um, and we just have, uh, this is the, the last comment question from, uh, from our chief of oncology, <laughs> Dr. Lau. Uh, I have to read this because it's kind of cool. Uh, thanks for your wonderful talk. I can add another case example from my experience to validate your presentation. I once had a teenage female patient with a bone tumor in her left leg. She complained of high level of pain, needing escalation of opioid treatment. I convinced her mom to let me engage a clinical psychologist to help with the pain. At first, her mom was angry with me, thinking that her daughter was crazy. Later, I discovered that my patient was depressed, that she could no longer play soccer. But because of her hobby of playing chess and her competitive spirit, I convinced her to play a game of chess, chess with me. I deliberately played a game with such that I barely beat her. I was previously trained by a chess grandmaster. I didn't know that, Ching, so um, that's great. <laughs> I noticed that her competitive spirit was rekindled as a result, and actually her de uh, demand for pain medications was not escalated over time. So please keep teaching CBT. Thanks, and I guess play chess with Ching is the, the motto there. So <laughs> anyways, great, great story. So validating awesome. what you're saying. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. I think most clinicians and physicians have these examples of, you know, how brain and body interact when it comes to kids with chronic illness and chronic pain. And it's nice to hear examples. So thank you. Thank you, Rachel. I'm going to have uh, pass it on to Bill for final comments and then we'll move on. No, I, Rachel, this was awesome. And, uh, you know, I think uh, your ability to deliver this message in a clear and enjoyable fashion has, I hoped, uh, you know, uh, energize some of our uh, our clinicians out there to understand pain, to understand the, uh, the brain body connection. And uh, they take your advice uh, to work with them every day. And thanks very much uh, for joining us today. Bill, I think you're a unicorn of a physician and you're amazing and wonderful. So grateful to be invited. We don't necessarily agree with you, Rachel, but that's okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Be safe. We'll see you again on Friday and then on Tuesday. Bye-bye. Nice meeting you, everybody. So nice to see you, Bill. Oh, that was great. Thanks so much. It was so fun. Yeah. No, I, I got. You got what? You got muted. Where'd you go? Can't hear you anymore, Bill.